0: The Wellington political world was fizzing. Of course, uh, we have Luxon's colleagues on tenterhooks and the government MPs as well, waiting to see how their new rival would perform, but uh, no one, I mean no one was more excited than the press gallery and the political commentariat. And one man in particular, here is News Talk ZB's Nick Mills talking about the showdown on the morning before it was set to take place. This afternoon, there's a new sh- new show in town. It's called Parliament. And I, for one, have cancelled appointments. I've ordered the popcorn in and I'm excited to see Parliament as it should be. Government versus opposition. Game on. <laughs> Game on. Incredible excitement, fizzing atmosphere coming out of the Newstalk ZB studio down in Wellington there. But even on an austere dry station like RNZ, there was still a lot of excitement humming in the air. So this is Deputy Political Editor Craig McCulloch.
1: I mean, I think, to be honest, as long as he doesn't embarrass himself today, National will be counting this as a win. Labour, on the other hand, will be wanting to bloody Luxon's nose early. They'll be wanting to knock him off balance, see him perhaps lose some of this early confidence. 2pm Parliament TV, it'll be appointment viewing. Oh, I'm tuning in. Can't <laughs> wait. <laughs> so, how do, uh,
0: sorry, carry on. Oh, no, I mean, I was just going to say it sounds scintillating and I'm sure that Corrin Dan tuning in would have, have, have at least double Parliament TV's audience for the day.
1: <laughs> I don't know. I saw it. I, I watched it in the afternoon, a bit of it. How, how did the big battle go down, in your opinion? Did Labour bloody Chris Luxon's nose?
0: Yeah, and Craig McCulloch's uh, terminology there, there. Well, I mean, there was a lot of opinion pieces that went in after the debate about how they performed, and One News' political editor, Jessica Much, said that uh, Luxon was nervous, and that's a reminder that he's not in Kansas anymore, Toto. And a, a lot of reporters actually pointed out those nerves, and they honed in on one incident in particular. So here's... Jenna Lynch on News Hub at six. In that
1: new role, you've got to be quick. David Seymour, if the problem is opposition on the opposition, David Seymour snaking his question. Nurses, why did it take back on track until he wasn't?
0: Does she, um, does she agree uh, with uh, sorry? At any sorry. Uh, That's Chris Luxon stumbling over a question, which I guess counts in this context as getting that nose bloodied.
1: So he was obviously nervous, but what did they actually debate?
0: It's it's an interesting question, Karen. It's funny that you would ask that. I mean, these requests for detail, I think they're really distracting from the overarching point I got from the media, which was that Chris Luxon went toe-to-toe with the PM and a rowdy political showdown. I mean, that, that piece of analysis that, that I mentioned earlier from Jessica Much it actually made no mention at all of what was discussed in the House. And there was only really, a, a, in the initial going, kind of cursory lines elsewhere. And, but by piecing them together sort of like a jigsaw, I have been able to figure out some information about what was talked about. And apparently they did talk about ICU capacity and uh, another major issue, inflation
1: you'd be forgiven for thinking it was only his delivery but who made the stronger points on those issues which sides arguments uh, had more substance
0: i mean again i, I think that you you you're, you're getting off topic here it's more about uh, just the the <laughs> conversation <laughs> what are you talking what are you bring up policy for? what's what's all this about look i i know i'm being a little bit sarcastic Here And maybe I'm sneering down from my lofty public media perch, but it really did seem like a lot of the reporting on this really seemed more concerned with style over substance. And I'm not naive. obviously style actually does matter quite a lot and leadership style is important it can galvanize a political party and give you momentum and the appearance of trustworthiness and credibility is genuinely important to the public i mean we don't hold elections up in hermitages on a hill where po-face political leaders sort of deliver their policy pronouncements and and we just sort of uh, vote on that you know i mean it's really about whether you believe that the person leading the party can implement that policy without screwing it up or changing their mind. And also the debating chamber is inherently combative. And by the way, this stuff, the cut and thrust, the bloody noses is a lot more fun, but than just talking about policy. But having said all of that, (laughs) it sometimes does feel like our political reporting can kind of forget these battles. And these topics actually meaningfully impact on people's lives. I mean, if we don't have enough ICU beds, that won't just make Jacinda Ardern look bad in the chamber. It could mean real people die needlessly. And inflation isn't just something to use to land blows in parliament. It influences the price of the necessities we all need to survive. And on the flip side, maybe those concerns about ICU capacity and inflation are overblown. And if the opposition's claims are spurious, we should hear about that as well. And I mean, this is kind of a common complaint about political coverage and it's not just here, it's all around the world. And the term that's used for it is horse race journalism. So, journalism that's more concerned with who's up and who's down and who's winning and who's losing the narrative than whether what's happening is good or bad or what's being said is true or untrue. And actually focusing on that stuff can help reporters seem objective and above the fray. It's kind of useful in that way, but It arguably doesn't serve audiences all that well because it it kind of exchanges explaining arguments for analysing whether they're well-made. And that gives politicians leeway to make false or bad-faith claims so long as they make them stylishly and convincingly. So after all this rant, I guess what I'm saying is I'd love to know whether Chris Luxon made good points rather than whether he made them in a leaderly fashion and whether Labour rebutted those points rather than whether whether they just bloodied his nose, and I think that was a tiny bit lacking, at least in the early going.
1: There was some media coverage that covered the topics at hand,
0: though. Yeah, I mean, I am being a little bit unfair here. I mean, I talked about Jessica Mutch's immediate post-match opinion piece earlier, but her package on One News did a pretty good job of canvassing the topics that were discussed, especially in the constrained time available. I thought Henry Cookett's Stuff, uh, also really got into some of the detail behind ICU beds, as did Thomas Coghlan at the Herald. I mean, once the fighting was out of the way and the calm had descended, many of these reporters were able to stand and you know the airy stillness of the empty battlefield and take stock of what had just taken place. But uh, I do think we should remember that substance is also important when that fight is still fresh.
1: Rather than stumbling. Because that seemed to be the word, yeah. didn't
0: it? Stumbling. Stumbling, something, yeah, and 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 that is important, as I said, the leadership qualities and whether he is kind of fit for the fight and all that sort of stuff. It's important, but I, I think that we can. This was a real, I mean, it was almost the ultimate example of that kind of horse race coverage, where it was all about how they're performing and who's winning the narrative, and 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 whether they're dominating the opposition rather than whether they're making good points.
1: Okay, that's politics out of the way. You want to turn your uh, yeah. turn your hand now to an opinion column, as you put it, for the ages. What do you mean by that?
0: I, I mean it's old now, but last week, I mean stuff did carry a column where even from the very first couple of words, you knew that what you were reading was history. <laughs> what was it on? Yeah. I'm. I mean, I'm talking, of course, about. John Bishop's column about failing to buy a sausage roll. I mean, right now we're dealing with the COVID outbreak. I mean, landmark housing legislation, all that stuff, a climate crisis. John Bishop looked at all that and he said, I'm going to write a column about not buying a sausage roll. And it's uh, an open letter to address to an anonymous attendant manning the warming drawer at a service station uh, where Bishop tried to buy said sausage roll. And it begins, dear staffer, I was in your petrol station recently and pointed out to you that your hot food cabinet didn't have its usual sausage rolls. I was ordering a coffee from you at the time, and your response was a great big expressive shrug of the (laughs) shoulders. And the story continues for 549 excruciating words after that. But to to summarise, that shrug angered Bishop to the point where he walked out telling the service station worker that he'd lost him as a customer. And, I mean, I could read you the whole thing, It's all a work of art, you should look it up on stuff, but perhaps it's better to listen to the man himself. This is John Bishop being interviewed about the column on the panel. I said to the staffer, I think your attitude is appalling and I'm not coming back. Maybe they saw you coming, John. Maybe he or she shrugged their shoulders because they saw you, another entitled grumpy man, in for his late-night sausage roll. No, no, it wasn't late night. This was half past ten in the morning. (laughs) Good to clarify that. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, we. (laughs) We wouldn't want anyone to think it was late at night. That's, that's a, that, that would be damning. But, I mean, it does pose some questions, doesn't it? I mean, does Bishop think the staff member has somehow has an ownership stake in the special station or that he's getting paid a commission on sales from the warming drawer? Like, why would he think that a minimum wage staffer cares if he doesn't shop there anymore? But, I mean, on the panel, another more practical question was asked. Why couldn't he have picked something else from the warming drawer? And he, hadn't, he had a much better explanation here. Could you not have handled it any other way? Could you could you have picked something else from the hot tray, the lasagna toppers, for example, John Bishop? I don't actually like lasagna toppers. I uh, I could have chosen something else. I suppose I could have had a meat pie, but the thing about the sausage rolls is that it's a, it was two or three bites. I didn't want something big. That's right. That's John Bishop explaining why he simply doesn't like lasagna toppers at ten thirty in the morning. <laughs> With due respect
1: to John Bishop's culinary preferences, it does seem a strange thing for a news organisation to publish.
0: Exactly. And, I mean, you're definitely not alone in that observation It was also made by the veteran journalist and editor Donna Chisholm who managed columnists like Bob Jones and Michael Laws when she was at the Sunday Star Times. And on Twitter she said, she had fought with those writers often, very opinionated writers, and would negotiate improvements to their columns. And she said she would like to think that she wouldn't have published this column about a sausage roll, uh, which she called a peevish, self-serving, and badly written gripe. Well, that sounds like a, a
1: compelling assessment. So why would Stuff publish it anyway?
0: Well, I mean, Chisholm's... Uh, theory on this is that newsrooms just simply don't have the time to do that kind of editing. And I mean, that's certainly something that I sympathize with. I mean, our, our newsrooms are much more under-resourced than they used to be. We've lost a huge percentage of our journalism workforce in recent years, you know, I, and people that I talk to say, you know, that they are just basically told to chuck up opinion pieces on websites. And I've heard of someone actually pushing back on these columns and and then the solution to that simply being that they've been stopped, asked <laughs> that the editors stop asking that person to load the columns anymore. So I mean, uh, yes, uh, we are under resourced and people are stretched for time, but I can't believe that we—it is now impossible to edit these opinion sections. And I mean, overseas we have the same kinds of economic pressures facing newsrooms, and they still put lots of efforts into curating and editing opinion sections. Cool. And Sorry.
1: I was just going to say, when you say Don, editing, do you mean editing or scrapping?
0: Well, it could be a bit of both. I think probably is right that the sausage roll column wasn't adding... huge amount to the world though it might have been so bad that it's good right it's given us something to talk about it's just hard to make that discernment in all cases right sometimes things are just bad because they're offensive and awful Uh, i mean i think that the very least that our newsroom should be doing is checking errors of fact right if people make truth claims in a newspaper they should be checked properly but if they're going to comment on a specialist topic is it really too much to ask that that they have some specialist knowledge or at least that they've consulted with people that do? So, I mean, just as an example, something that's kind of annoyed me for a little while, a few weeks ago, the Herald published a column by Richard Preble and that column said that the modeler, Sean Hendy, had predicted that the Auckland COVID outbreak might be well below 100 cases. That was just misrepresenting Sean Hendy's position. In fact, that was a reference to the estimate he gave for how many cases were yet to be detected in the community at the time the outbreak was first discovered. So not for the whole outbreak itself. I mean, Preble also claimed that Pfizer's protection wanes so fast that he have, may have no protection at all against COVID despite being double jammed five months ago. That's just wrong. I mean, studies have been done on waning immunity and one showed its protection against any kind of infection had waned to 47 percent after six months but even then Pfizer still provided a 90 percent defense against hospitalization. I mean these are just areas of fact that sneak through when we don't edit at all and I think that that is really vital.
1: So is it fewer staff not as many resources? Is that what the problem is? Just not enough
0: people? I, You know I, I don't think it is that. I mean, having been in newsrooms and done this kind of stuff, I think that we have an editorial culture in some newsrooms that kind of sees opinion as a a bit of a click vortex. It certainly has been in places where I've worked, where you can kind of just hurl a range of kind of increasingly vacuous brain parts and you get clicks out of them. It's kind of that side of the business, it's the click maximization style side of the business rather than something that we're applying a huge amount of editorial discretion to. And I think that's just a particularly problematic situation in today's information landscape, because nowadays. It's not being walled off in a distinct section of the newspaper where you know that you're getting stuff that might be a little more out there. It's just being published on Facebook, and everything looks the same. Social media has blurred that line between news and commentary, right? It all just gets presented in exactly the same way, and people share it on Facebook. And so the, the consequences for publishing misinformation are far higher, I think, and the protections against... Um, at misinforming your audience, are far lower. So I would say that newsrooms have kind of a responsibility to put, it, put a bit more effort into these, new, into these opinion sections and to make sure that they're accurate.
1: On to some media news. Hayden, today uh, we got news about employment matters at Sean Plunkett's new media venture, The Platform. Is it an online radio station? Am I correct
0: in saying that? Oh, I, I haven't been keeping up with the, the platform, but that seems to be the vibe at this stage. He has an office and he's hiring people. I mean, uh, today he hired uh, Judith Collins, ousted as national leader, and one of her staff is Annie O'Brien, is heading to work for Plunkett, along with uh, the former broadcaster that I mentioned earlier, Michael Laws. And Back on the air. Back on the air, I mean, both of them obviously subject to what's been referred to euphemistically in the media as controversy. I mean, Michael Laws once called the King of Tonga a big, uh, no, sorry, a fat brown slug is what he said, uh, and and Nan Sachinand, uh, a fat Indian. These were insults that he levelled on air, uh, kind of. Ugh. Uh, Annie O'Brien was involved in the group Speak Up for Women which denies trans women a woman and has recently sent out OIA requests asking secondary and intermediate schools how many trans students they have enrolled and what quote, problems that's presenting So
1: so safe to say there's a trend emerging here
0: Yeah and I mean it fits with the, the sort of clarion call that Plunkett has given about this new venture and that he's taking on cancel culture and sort of platforming these fringe or sort of these, uh, what are they, you know, uh, people that have been subject to exclusion or cancelling or that kind of thing. And, I mean, so far that strategy does seem to just involve getting people on board who have been willing to say or do things that have hurt people and not exactly powerful people, right? I mean, uh, trans people who have experienced difficulties and increased marginalization just throughout their lives and, and, and have sort of reasonably terrible statistical representation in a variety of uh, uh, statistics, uh, social statistics, that, that like suicide, that are, uh, are troubling. And I mean, Michael Laws has targeted people that aren't exactly at the top of the food chain. Either in the top of society, and I I don't know what the value is to be honest. And just hiring people that are going to hurt people that are already hurting.
1: I'm curious as to where the money's coming from. These people won't be coming cheap. So who's paying for it? Do you know?
0: Uh, that I don't know actually, Karen. That should be a subject of a media watch investigation. I haven't put a lot of resources into it at this stage, but I will check that out.
1: Very good. Well, you do that, and we'll come back to, what, next week? How many more midweek media watches before Christmas? A couple? It,
0: is it one or two? I think it's only one. It might be only one. This no. is the penultimate. <laughs>
1: okay. All right, then. We'll, we'll talk to you then. Oh, actually, I won't be speaking to you. It's late edition from next week. i am uh, be doing afternoons with for Jessie's on holiday, so it'll be late edition next Wednesday night. Hey, it's been a pleasure. Okay, Hayden, thank you. Good to talk to you. See you in twenty twenty two. All our
0: problems will be gone.
1: Oh, thanks for that. That's great. It's <laughs> Hayden Donnell with Midweek Media Watch.